0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Doctors and pharmacists say there's been a spike in skin infections and mosquito-borne diseases in flood-torn towns.
2: Flood water is awful stuff. It's got germs and it's full of chemicals, so it causes infections and dermatitis. So we've had people you know, running around for, for days on end in gumboots with uh, their feet in a terrible mess and then they've become infected.
1: And rising floodwaters force Indigenous people to move off-country to higher ground.
3: Down the camp, you're doing something, whether you're clipping firewood, sitting in the boat, rebaiting your, your nets. Here, once you've wash the dish, dishes, there's nothing else to do. If I actually stay here, I'm just going to die bored.
1: I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country. The federal budget was handed down when thousands of Australians were in the middle of a flood or they were picking up the pieces after an earlier natural disaster. To address this, $3 billion was in the budget as a contingency to meet disaster recovery costs. Disaster relief relies very much on volunteers and to assist with that, the budget also set aside more than £38 for a group called Disaster Relief Australia and that was to fund 5,000 extra volunteers. Anastasia Boiesis is the head of, of relation, government relations rather for Disaster Relief Australia and she joins me now. Anastasia, can you tell me about the organisation and what it is that you guys do? Sure, thanks
4: Sinead. So we're a veteran led disaster relief agency. We were founded in 2016 and we utilise the skills and experiences of military veterans and first responders to rapidly deploy disaster relief teams. Um, into those disaster zones. So what that means is that we we deploy volunteers onto the ground to help residents um, and homeowners in the local community with the cleanup that's so important in that recovery phase.
1: So you're currently, you've got two teams working in two states. You've got Operation Reardon, which is helping in New South Wales, and then also you've moved into Victoria. You've been on the ground there in Shepparton. Tell me what's going on there.
4: Yes, so in Shepparton, the, the floodwaters are still quite high, so that the residents there still are waiting for some of the waters to recede. Um, the council is doing a fantastic job of, of coordinating um, and getting out their public information, and the residents are really just um, looking to get back into their homes and looking to get that clean up done. Um, there's a lot of obviously a lot of impact. It's a, it's a really uh, widespread geographical area out through Shepton, Etchua, Rochester, down to the west of Melbourne and Maribyrnong. Um, so there's quite a bit, quite a bit to do out there. And
1: how do you go getting volunteers quickly to the spots that they're needed?
4: So we have a pool of volunteers that we call on. We've got approximately two thousand volunteers in our pool at the moment. Uh, and once we know that a uh, disaster is happening our planning team will monitor that quite closely so when the danger has passed and that response period has passed we'll let our team know and let us know their availability and we get them in there as soon as we can
1: so what sort of work do you do because many of you in the organization itself the staff are ex-veterans as you said but i'd imagine the volunteers come from all sorts of backgrounds
4: Yeah, they do. We've got quite a few core capabilities. One of the biggest capabilities we're looking at, utilizing in the Victoria region, is managing spontaneous volunteers. So spontaneous volunteers are the volunteers that come from the community or from the surrounds and who aren't affiliated with an agency prior to um, putting their hand up to volunteer. So we provide coordination overlay of those volunteers. So they register with us through a link Uh, on our website and then they come out on the day to our operating base and we give them a good brief, we give them a safety brief, and we send them out with our team to provide that leadership. And at the end of the day, they they come back in um, and we give them a debrief and uh, let them go home. So the kinds of jobs that they're doing um, it's just getting into those residents' home. Uh, in a flood, there's, there's a lot of what we call muck and gut, so uh, getting in there and doing some really hard work, getting that mud out, hosing out, sometimes taking out furniture or, or plasterboards or carpets, getting out onto the nature strip ready for collection. Uh, we also have other capabilities. We have an aerial damage assessment capability, so I know that the team uh, has come in and they're, they're in Maribyong at the moment, and what they can do is is fly the drones over the area and provide a really good sort of real-time um, understanding of, of what the zone looks like at the moment and where the impact still is.
1: With this financial boost that you received through the budget, it was $38.3 million, and the idea is to allow you... Scoop up more volunteers, hoping to get five thousand volunteers. Where will you find them from?
4: <laughs> that's a good question. We we are working with an agency for a, a large scale recruitment plan. Um, we, we're lucky enough that we've got two thousand volunteers, and we haven't we haven't actually done any active recruitment. So we think that that's a really reasonable target for us. Uh, we still yet to utilise a, a lot of um, channels that we can to recruit those volunteers into our organization. And certainly the the profile that we're getting now is um, increasing awareness. And we've even had an influx recently for this event of of people wanting to volunteer with us.
1: And do you have volunteers all around the country?
4: We do. So we have disaster relief teams in in every state in the country Uh, and our volunteers are based uh, everywhere from Tasmania through the east coast all the way across to the west. So when there's an event, we call on our teams from around the country and we bring them into where the event is.
1: And uh, I'm kind of, I'm interested in you know who who's who's up for muck and guts I suppose. Um, in terms of age group, is it people that are retired? You know what sorts of people put their hands up?
4: We really get all sorts. Um, any anywhere from I've seen young young teenage girls you know over eighteen but young teenage girls uh, really get in and do some hard work and underestimate them um, right through to retirees we do have a place for everyone we we can find uh, gainful work for everyone um, in these situations but the, the value of what we're doing you know people do think what well, you know why do you do that What's what's in it for you, um, the feeling that you get from being able to help someone on their worst day. Uh, far outweighs the, the sore muscles from the manual labour you have the next day. So there's um, a real... Um, it's a humbling experience to be able to come in and, and speak with those homeowners who have lost everything and just be able to do something really tangi- tangible for them.
1: It's $3 billion that was put into this budget for disaster management which is a huge sum of money do you you see this kind of disaster management like that this is just the way it is now this is part of the fabric of living in australia particularly regional australia that these events will happen and there will always be a mop-up after them
4: yeah we are seeing increasing severity and impact of disasters uh, we would all know as Australians that we've, we've seen the bushfires of 1920 and now the floods of this year as two really significant events and then there's been some more minor events in between those. Uh, we do also work in resilience, so we, um, we map areas uh, and we work with communities to identify um, points in their community that might be important and how they can make their communities more resilient, but there, there is always going to be a place for recovery.
1: Anastasia Boyesas, who's the Head of Government Relations for Disaster Relief Australia. Thanks for chatting to Australia Wide today.
4: Thanks for having me, tonight. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio.
1: Staying with the flood situation, doctors and pharmacists are warning of a spike in skin infections and mosquito-borne diseases in towns where people are having to wade through stagnant and rancid floodwater on a daily basis. This story from Alex Hyman and Sarah Lawrence.
0: At Flood-Affected Rochester, pharmacist Brett Phillips says a growing number of patients are presenting with skin infections and dermatitis, requiring medication after open sores were exposed to contaminated water.
2: The flood water is awful stuff. It's got germs and it's full of chemicals, so it causes infections and dermatitis. So we've had people you know, running around for, for days on end in gumboots with uh, their feet in a terrible mess and then they've become infected. One of the things we need to bear in mind is that this is a, a marathon, not a sprint. We're probably, you know, the town of Rochester is going to be down for quite some time. Um, and uh, while well, there's a wonderful community spirit, um, I think it's, it's going to be a, a long, hard
0: battle for everyone. Dr Bruce Bolam is the unit director with Loddon Mallee Health.
2: Floodwaters are typically contaminated with sewage and other toxins, and obviously moving around in those is potentially quite risky particularly if people have got open sores and open wounds where obviously infections can become pretty significant pretty quickly. So we strongly recommend that people doing anything in the floodwaters trying to minimize contact with floodwaters that obviously you wear rubber boots rubber gloves try and keep minimal contact if any contact to direct to your skin and in these situations good old-fashioned soap and water is your friend. Warm,
0: humid weather in central Victoria and the Northeast has also exacerbated the growth of mould within homes. Here's Dr Bruce Bolam again.
2: We are obviously seeing mould in significant amounts in some of those homes uh, where people are staying. Obviously that can lead to a lot of different uh, skin problems, respiratory difficulties. So cleaning those with household bleach where they're extensive, getting proper commercial advice and technical advice on how to clean that out, particularly if it gets in air conditioning and other systems is, is really quite important as we go forward.
0: Rochester resident Stephen Harris has mould growing on every wall of his house. He says he's on medication now after suffering a cut on his arm during the flood cleanup. We've got antibacterial stuff sprayed everywhere trying to kill the mould a bit
5: uh, spend minimal time in the house as possible just sorting through what's to be thrown out so yeah 95% of stuff's all gone. Mosquitoes are in plague proportions here at the moment. If you haven't got Eregard or something on, they're just gonna bite the hell out of you. They're really bad. Lost a lot of weight in the last week and a half. Yeah, you don't eat much, sleep much.
4: Are you are you worried that the mold could make you sick?
5: <clears throat> uh, yes, that's something always in the in the back of our minds. So far, we've been lucky. Um, I've had to get special medication from the doctor, compensate infection, that sort of thing.
4: So what kind of infection were you getting? <clears throat>
5: Uh, It was just like if I had any cuts or anything like that in the arms, they'd just all swell
0: up, that sort of thing. With mosquito numbers growing in flood-affected areas, doctors are warning people to wear long sleeve clothing and repellent for protection to avoid getting bitten. This morning, Rochester residents queued for free vaccinations against the mosquito-borne Japanese encephalitis virus. Doctors and pharmacists were also warning people in flooded towns to keep up their asthma treatment. And Dr Bruce Bolam also offered a reminder on COVID-safe protocols, especially for those who had been displaced from their flood-damaged homes and were sleeping in large groups at relief centres.
1: That story from Alex Hyman and Sarah Lawrence. You're listening to Australia Wide.
4: On ABC
1: Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Now we're going to stick to the floods as more stories continue to emerge. The rising floodwaters is forcing several Indigenous people to move off country in northern Victoria to higher ground. Authorities are continuing to provide life-saving emergency messaging to those affected by the crisis, but there are concerns about whether the information is getting through to people living remotely on country. Tamara Clark reports from along the swollen Murray River.
3: My tent seven foot high. That's underwater now.
6: This is Mutty Mutty elder Maka Egan. He's been relocated from his submerged riverside home to a brick house in town at Robinvale in northern Victoria.
3: In the 80s I was there for seven years. Got farted out twice in the 90s same place where I am now.
6: Rising floodwater is forcing members of the Indigenous community to move off-country in an area already struggling with a housing shortage. Macca says many like him are in the same position, but some of them might not receive flood warnings because they live remotely. I've
3: another mate down here underneath the bridge. He got flooded. Now. Over the years, we see the river come up. And go goes down. And it comes up. You know, it could take a couple of years. And that's what we thought.
6: Murray Valley Aboriginal Corporation Housing Manager Vicky Morris says the Robinvale organisation has supported two people to relocate but can only offer a limited amount of assistance in emergency cases. The caravan park is
1: flooded here. All the, all the caravans have been moved up to higher ground um, as well as um, the, we've moved a couple of um, gentlemen that were living down on the river um, and we've moved them to higher ground as well. And I think it's just overseeing what our community's up to and everyone really pulls together. And um, Well, we've supported two people at this stage that we know of, um, down in the Riverbend, um, and our men's group have moved one, one guy um, onto higher ground, moved his van, towed it up a couple of weeks ago, um, just as a precaution, now I'm sure they're glad that that's happened. And then another gentleman was moved just recently and um, put up on higher ground as well. So, um, and that was um, that was a, their elder gentleman. That, that's their choice. So you know, all we can do is support them
2: um, and put support in place as well.
6: The advice is to move to higher ground, but Robinvale Network House coordinator Jack Dang says it will be difficult, if not impossible, for some members of the community to relocate due to financial or cultural factors.
3: They're expected to move uh, to a park, per se, and pay the rent, but a lot of them are quite um, lower social, economic um, uh, background, and they... they don't think, yeah, don't, don't, can't, I don't think they can afford it. Um, but uh, that's where we come in and help to a small extent, it's just not a great extent.
6: In a statement, the Mali Catchment Authority says it's continuing its engagement with local incident control centres through the region to ensure traditional owners and the Aboriginal community are informed about the floods and potential impacts. They say maps will be provided once available to ensure the community have a good understanding of the risks and potential for flooding. But for now, Macaegan Egan is missing home. Down the camp,
3: you were doing something. You wasn't moving. Whether you're clipping firewood, sitting in the boat, you know, free baiting your, your nets, doing something. Here, now, once you watched washed the dish, dishes... And nothing else to do. If I actually stay here, I'm just going to die bored. Man.
1: That story from Tamara Clark, who was reporting there from along the swollen Murray River.
5: ABC Australia Wide.
1: Total change of pace now. How does eating long spined sea urchin sound for your next seafood feast? And I don't mean the spikes, I mean the row inside. Well, it turns out eating more sea urchin could actually save Australia's great southern reef from ruin. And a federal Senate inquiry is investigating the issue. Reporter Kira Prest has been looking at the issue and she has this story.
7: Covered in long spikes, sea urchins might not be at the top of your list when you're shopping for seafood, but eating them could help restore and protect Australia's Great Southern Reef, which stretches from New South Wales right down to Tasmania and across to Western Australia. Despite being native to New South Wales, the long-spined sea urchins have greatly damaged local reefs and have also made their way down into Victorian and Tasmanian oceans, creating urchin barrens as they go. The edible sea urchin which is found inside the shell, is popular in migrant communities and demand for the product is growing, which could be a good thing for the environment. Director CEO of Sea and Harvest, Chris Theodore, has seen his business on the New South Wales south coast grow since starting more than a decade ago.
5: We've only done the local domestic market for the last 10 or 12 years, but we're just getting set up for export now. There is quite a big demand in Australia and it's um, yeah, steadily growing. But it's still mainly the Asians who eat the majority and um, also the, the Maoris absolutely love it. It's one of their traditional foods. So they're two, our two biggest sort of customers.
7: The impact of these sea urchins is really evident in Tasmania with most of the healthy kelp forests being wiped out in recent years. Tasmanian Green Senator Peter Wish-Wilson has seen the impact firsthand as a scuba diver himself, which prompted him to launch a federal inquiry into the issue. When
3: I looked into why the last kelp forest Largely vanished off Tasmania's coasts. It was for numerous because of numerous pressures, but one of the key factors was, you know, the the march of uh, the invasive urchins that have come down from New South Wales on the the warming and nutrient poor East Australian Current, and they proliferated with no predators. They proliferated and. Like little pack men, they've kind of munched their way through um, our coastal, offshore coastal ecosystems, including these giant kelp forests.
7: The destruction caused by sea urchins along the Great Southern Reef has been compared to the damage caused by Crown of Thorns starfish along the Great Barrier Reef in Queensland. But the issues have seen very different amounts of government support, according to Secretary of the New South Wales Abalone Association, John Smythe.
3: People are aware of the Crown of Thorns, in the Great Barrier Reef, and we've seen nasty pictures of the reef systems that have been impacted by the crown of thorns. Well, the Great Southern Reef from northern New South Wales right through to Tasmania is probably the same distance, around about 2,000 kilometres. And not a lot of people are aware that you know, for overgrazing of sea urchins can create a similar problem that we're seeing in the Great Barrier Reef. The um, submissions are calling for up to 50 million in funding. Whereas they've already spent 160 million on the, or well, they're calling for 160 million to control Crown of Thorns. It's not a big ask when you spread it out.
7: Traditional custodians have been observing and using these waters for thousands of years. Despite their extensive knowledge of our oceans, they say they haven't been given a seat at the table until now. Well, Benjamin, an advocate for the New South Wales Aboriginal Fishing Rights Group, Wally Stewart, is hopeful the inquiry will lead to better opportunities for his people.
2: Basically, at the end of the day, what we're asking for is um, we want to fix up our waters, we want to have the same management and we want to create some employment for our communities. I don't think we're asking very much. You know, I think we all want to fix our waters up and look after our environment, but I'm we shouldn't be left out of the equation all the time, especially when we're the traditional owners and we never see this country.
7: The inquiry will hold hearings from early next year and the report is then due in March. The chair also plans to take the committee for a dive themselves to see the urchin barrens and kelp restoration work as part of the inquiry.
1: Kira Press bringing us that story there about the impact of sea urchins on our great southern reef. Supermarket drone deliveries will start on the Gold Coast in Queensland next week, with the first lot of deliveries supplied from the Ormau shopping centre, 30 minutes drive north from the city centre. Our reporter Cathy Border went out to find out how punters at the shopping centre were feeling about deliveries from the sky. And it seems not everyone was on board. I'm into my technology, so I don't see anything wrong with it. Now I can see what can go
7: wrong. It's a completely bad idea. have to be clear so it's a safe landing. It's just too much I, of an I hassle. don't think it actually lands, though. It's, it actually drops it from the sky.
4: That's even yeah. worse. <laughs>
7: <Yeah>. <laughs> it's probably great if you're a local and you need a few items, but you know, I do a giant shop, so I can't imagine a one little drone carrying you know 50 kilo of food to me. (laughs) Do you think some of your neighbours might use it? Probably not where I live we're on a very large acreage property and you know what I mean we shop a different way because of where we live and we can get flooded in so you know when we shop we do buy
1: you know bulk food and that in case we get flooded in or power goes out. Mixed reviews there. It's not a first for Australia. A pilot programme was launched in Canberra early this year, successfully. Simon Rossi is the general manager of Contractor Wing Australia and he told Sally Rope how it'll all work
5: our drones are are custom designed to deliver you know smaller parcels safely reliably and very quickly and really the we don't see drone delivery replacing the weekly shop that you do but more it's about um, getting the items that you need in a hurry and for example uh, if you've forgotten or you've run out of bread for kids lunches in the mornings you can quickly order a drone um, to have the bread delivered in minutes or you might be at home cooking lunch on a Sunday for your friends and you've You've run out of the, the the special ingredient that you need. And so drone delivery is very much about the items that you want in a hurry and the smaller parcels, be it a, a snack, fresh food that you might be wanting to, to eat during the day or, or a ready-made meal. And so as the, the, the parcel is packed and ready to go, it's loaded onto the aircraft. The aircraft will ascend to a height of about 70 metres and will fly at 110 kilometres an hour to the customer's destination before um, lowering down to a height of about seven metres, and then the drone will gently um, lower the parcel to the ground, placing it on the on the ground for the customer to collect, before drone will return back to here in Ormo. The drone operates fully autonomously. That means that there's nobody driving or flying the aircraft at any time. However, we do have licensed pilots that that are sitting sitting and overviewing the whole system, and they're looking for things like other aircrafts that might fly into our airspace or 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 looking at the, the weather patterns and the wind and at certain levels of wind and fog that we don't operate. So we do have a team that are looking for those environmental factors that may mean that we'll close the system down for a period of time. And so an example of a, a police helicopter coming into the airspace, we will yield to the to the police helicopter or the helicopter until it's cleared the space and then we will open operations again. We're pretty good at operating through weather. I mean, it, it, it's it, we're doing some test flights today out at Ormo and it's wet and it's windy, but we're, we're able to do those flights. But yeah, there is a certain level... Level of high wind and low visibility where we do not operate. Um, once it gets past, past certain thresholds, in the next couple of months, we will be getting close. Uh, we'll be um, delivering to suburbs that are adjacent to the Ormo location. I think there's seven or eight suburbs that we ultimately will be able to serve from this location. Um, and you know, as we've we've seen, we've been in uh, South East Queensland for a number of years, and the response from the community has been really positive. And so yes, we are looking to continue to expand um, our, our footprint.
1: Simon Rossi from Wing Australia drone delivery service I have to say that blows my mind I can't imagine having something delivered to me via drone but we'll see you don't know and that's it for Australia Wide for this Thursday I'm Sinead Mangan I hope you have a lovely evening cheerio